Hi, and welcome to episode 28 of the Untether podcast. Today, we have Dr. Scott Siegel joining us. Dr. Siegel is an internationally renowned pioneering tongue-tie surgeon mentored through medical school, residency, and in private practice by the late tongue-tie pioneer Elizabeth Corralos, MD. Dr. Siegel is a dual-degree MD DDS, double board-certified oral and maxillofacial surgeon. Dr. Siegel is also fellow of the American College of Surgeons, International College of Surgeons, and American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Siegel is the founder and medical director of the Center for Tethered Oral Tissues located in New York City and Long Island, New York. Dr. Siegel lectures on the topics of TOTS internationally, is a peer reviewer for numerous medical journals, and publishes on the topics of infant feeding, laser tongue tie surgery, and aerophasia induced reflux associated with lip and tongue ties. Dr. Siegel currently conducts research in the area of tongue ties in collaboration with Columbia University Department of Biomedical Engineering and City University of New York. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Vulcan. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Well, thank you, Scott, so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. So I know we want to talk about, you know, evidence-based medicine um, and also clinical experience. So let's just jump right in on that topic. I'm going to let you take it from there. Right. And, you know, our whole field of, of, you know, tethered oral tissues and whatnot, which is, uh, I want to say, a newer field emerging, you know, the tongue-tie issue is is almost separate, but it's, it's not. But when we start talking about the tethers throughout the mouth um, and the tongue tie issue itself, what we have been battling, I think, as, as we call ourselves a specialty or emerging specialty is, is in medicine. Um, there's a big push to have evidence and evidence-based, you know, protocols, making decisions and, and how hospitals or big organizations make their decisions on, on having guidelines and they want studies and many of the studies that they're looking for, these level one types of studies with, you know, large cohorts, controlled, randomized, or double randomized, controlled studies. That double, blind, think, double, yeah. you know, double blind, double, yeah. Double blind, everything you name, which we can't really provide um, based on our populations that we treat. You know, not only can't we provide that based on, you know, the variables at play, but the ethics that go involved in you know, potentially denying a baby yes. or a child an obvious treatment that may help. So I think those of us, you know, like yourself and the in the field who are trying to push this forward and trying to have other professionals listen, we're trying to come up with other ways of getting objective data and trying to present that. So I think, you know, there's there's a lot going on. And I'd say even in the past, you know, three or five years, it seems to be a, a more of a push now for a lot of people to try to push the studies forward. So I think, you know, talking a little bit about that, you know, today. is, is Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm seeing that too. And I know that you have previously published work on um, aerophasia, induced reflux and limitations 
um, after lingual limitations of the types of research studies. Um, you know, so I would love to talk about that because that was actually one of the first ways that I became familiar with your work was through that whole concept of aerophasia because my daughter experienced that aerophasia induced reflux. And um, so, you know, let's talk about that. I mean, you know, basically, basically what was going on for years, um, I've been treating babies and, and tongue ties for going on 20 years. It's 19 years this year, going on 20 years. And one of the side effects we were seeing, and I call it side effects, but, you know, it was kind of a pleasant effect. And many of the babies, we were just releasing tongue ties for breastfeeding problems, especially we were starting to see reductions in reflux symptoms or, you know, those sorts of things. And that was kind of self-reported from parents along the way. And that was kind of just an accumulation of, uh, of experience, again, over the years, and then talking to other professionals along the way. And I know, you know, one of the other tongue-tied pioneers leading that charge was Larry Kotlow, um, who was looking at that as well. And many of us in the whole field going to conferences, talking about this whole area, is like, are you seeing reductions of your, you know, patients with reflux symptoms? Yeah, you know, we are. And many of them are actually stopping the medications mm. um, that they were placed on because they're in, in, in the field of medicine at this point um, and pediatric medicine and gastroenterology. Um, there's a knee jerk reflex to kind of put babies that as soon as they start with some sort of reflux symptom or sign, they're put on a medication, yeah. a certain type of medication, you know, antioxidant. Yeah. Um, like Zantac and things like that, that have actually been shown to have pretty significant side effects or potential side effects. Yeah. Be, um, and and long-term, I think long-term. you're finding long-term negative side effects as well. Right. It's a little scary. Yeah, it yeah. is scary. And there's been a lot of documentation and data coming out, you know, almost there was a, a period of time weekly and monthly in journals like pediatrics and JAMA journal of the American medical association talking about the, you know, deleterious side effects of those medications, not only the infants, but long-term. Mm. Um, and we were looking at, well, you know, thinking about maybe a simple, less risky sort of procedure, which is minimally invasive, like a tongue or a lip tie release can help with that. You know, maybe we should think about that as part of the differential, you know, for, for pediatricians to think about. So, you know, basically tr- just getting it off the ground and a simple study was, is, you know, retrospectively looking at and questionnaires and surveys. It's not the type level one type of science that or research or evidence-based research that they're looking for, but it, it's a starting point. Um, and I was able to kind of, you know, accumulate data looking at, um, at a fairly large number of, of you know, infants with these things, about a thousand. And we found that at least 50% of these babies were able to be weaned off those medications within the first one to two weeks. after lip time. So that's pretty significant, you know, yes. statistically anyway. Um, and it, again, you know, there's a lot of pushback. I was able to present that, you know, um, to the American Academy of Pediatrics, I think it was in 2013 or 14 or, or a few years ago. Um, you know, and it's definitely just like we all deal and are met with a lot of, you know, anger and barbs about, you know, coming up with these things. But there were definitely people who listened. And, you know, the higher ups that we, we joke around in the ivory towers were, you know, shoot it right down. <laughs> the people in the trenches and the pediatricians in the trenches were like, yeah, I think you're onto something here. Mm-hmm. And so it's just getting, you know, your foot into the door, trying to push things forward. Saying, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but it's something that we're seeing. 
Yeah, something we need to explore a bit further because it seems pretty significant. Right. So, you know, we have potentially a correlation here. I don't want to say this is the be all and end all. There are other variables that go into play um, as well. But we think this is a piece of the puzzle. So it at least deserves maybe some further looking at and potentially thinking about it as far as going on the list of the differential diagnosis for pediatricians or pediatric GI people to think about. Because when I, when I lecture about these things and I talk to pediatricians and I lecture at Grand Rounds for pediatric departments or whatnot, say, you know, digestion's not starting down below. It's starting in the mouth. Right. So right. when we think about digestion, we think about how a baby's swallowing. You know, this has kind of been verified with some other studies. You know, Bobby Gahari has kind of verified some of this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a... a Dr. Nikki Mills, who's an ENT, who just came out with a couple of, you know, great published pieces on lingual anatomy, has actually witnessed aerophagia um, in in cinematic real-time MRIs that she's done on breastfeeding infants, and she can actually see the baby swallowing the air. So it was one of those things, well, you know, worldwide, we kind of see these things, and we're trying to come up with different ways on, on trying to prove it. So that was kind of the starting point of, of my research, you know, clinical research anyway. I love it. I love it. And you've mentioned a number of good resources that we can also put in the show notes so that everybody can have access to some of these, um, some of the references for, you know, Dr. Bobby Gahari. We all kind of, um, you know, work off of each other and each other's work and, you know, we we at least can confer with each other um, and talk about our findings and where you go. And I think that's awesome because I think sometimes we feel like we're on like what we call in the pediatric feeding world, like dysphagia islands. Yeah. <laughs> like we're kind of like on our own little island over here and we really want that collaboration. And I think it's so important for you guys to be talking to each other because, you know, when you can confirm what you're seeing, it definitely makes a case for exploring these things further. Um, and, and it's also, I think, validating, especially because if it's not a level one research study, but yet you have all these other practitioners who are agreeing and they see what you're seeing. That also, at least for me, validates it in my practice and right. it's information that I need and that I want to have to help my families on a day-to-day basis. So um, I really appreciate the work that you've done, both as a mom and a professional, because it directly impacted both me, you know, both my child and me, uh, my first child. And my second one, we released her tongue at day five, so we didn't have to get into all of that. But <laughs> but the symptoms were starting already, you know, that young. So um, now are there other collaborative studies um, going on at the moment that you want to discuss? Yeah, I mean, the, I have two um, IRB um, collaborative studies going on right now that that were kind of in the data collection phase. Um, the first one, which is a, a bigger study, which is um, I'm currently working in collaboration with Kathy Jenna. I'm sure everybody knows mm-hmm. who she is. She's, you know, world-renowned IBCLC um, swallowing uh, expert. And we're working with the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Columbia University um, and Tel Aviv University in Israel. Um, and and the, basically, the study that we're doing is using ultrasounds. Um, we're using ultrasounds on infants, kind of dovetailing off with some of the work that Donna Geddes had done to really look at, you know, breastfeeding and ultrasounds and looking at what was going on. We're taking it kind of the next steps, looking at, you know, before and after uh, lingual phrenectomy cool. um, using using CO2 laser, but looking at the kinematics and, and actually having the biomedical engineers um, mathematically analyze the ultrasounds mm. and looking at 
the the tongue motility or what we call the kinematics of the tongue before and after. And I, you know, at some point I can always, I'll send you before and after. We, we can't really share a lot of it because it's it right. You're still in the point. trenches, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but we are seeing um, objective changes, improvements in yeah. tongue organization um, after, you know, and you can see side by side what it looks like immediately after. And then we want to do longer term, you know, longitudinal seeing if what we're doing sticks, you know, or adding other variables into play, you know, doing before, you know, pre-op oral myofunctional work or pre-op suck training or post-op. So there's other things that we'll add into the mix, but we're getting some baseline data at this point, which is promising and it is showing objective changes in improvements and and elevation. It's really the, the, the peristaltic wave like motion, which is, organizing elevation of where the posterior tongue is actually elevating and hitting the hard soft palate junction is improving. And that's actually showing, we're actually seeing the nipple come in deeper, mm. milk transfer improving um, objectively. So it's not just, you know, what we think we're seeing, but we have numbers, mathematical numbers, which is something that, you know, other doctors, maybe pediatricians may, may pay attention to. We don't know, but it gives them another way of getting some objective data so we can push that part of the research. So the, the next, we're starting with infants. We'll also be categorizing into the younger children with dysphagias, older children, up through the adult population as well. So we're kind of just getting started with these things. Um, and of course, it's all about time and money, but we were able to get some grant money going with this. And I have an ultrasound machine in my office, so we have Kathy come in. She does the ultrasound imaging, um, and we're blinded. I, I don't know who's getting what sort of thing, you know, as far as um, we try to be as blinded as possible with these mm-hmm. sort of things because um, I don't know what is happening with the tongues before or after. She's doing the analysis, um, and uh, we're, we're seeing some promising results from the get-go, so more to come for that. Um, and it's exciting because it's a, it's an international collaboration. So we have um, David Alad, who's who's a very well known biomedical engineer from Tel Aviv, who also teaches at at Columbia, and then the chairman of the biomedical engineering department, um, Andrew Lane, over there, and the grad students. So we're all working together, and um, that's exciting. That's very so you have very multidisciplinary um, interaction there, and that's that's very exciting. Yeah, and that's so important to have that that multidisciplinary interaction right. and approach because I think, you know, it definitely brings different skills, different background, different information to the table, and you can look at things differently. So I'm really excited to see what you guys, you know, uh, figure out from this and publish when it when we get to that point. Um, and now you had said you were working on two different studies. Yeah, so the other study we have, which is just getting up and running now, um, is, is, again, we're, we're looking at infant sleep. Um, one of the feedback or the, you know, the, again, we talk about what we see and what we hear from parents after doing these procedures is that many times the parents are reporting that the babies tend to sleep better after the procedure, maybe not in the immediate, you know, procedure because they might be a little sore and a little fussy from the, from the procedure, but we see improvements, um, from a subjective standpoint. Um, and then, you know, the research that's come out in the, in the previous years from the Stanford group, you know, from Dr. Gimeno, Dr. Mm-hmm. Zaghi, and or, or looking at, you know, tongue ties as being a marker 
for potential development of obstructive sleep apnea or sleep disorder breathing brings us back to the, the infants and looking at the babies and seeing if we can, you know, get some sort of understanding. So we have um, a collaboration with, um, with NYU and it's the city university of New York um, child development lab. Hmm. And there's um, a grad student who's also an oral myofunctional therapist, Ruth Marciliani, um, who's she's published and she's works. I think she's published a chapter recently in Joy Moller's book as well. Um, but we are looking at infants, um, their sleep before and after lingual phrenotomy. We're trying to do it within the first six, seven months of life. And we're trying to get some objective data before and after. One of the things we're looking at is movement, um, infant movement, restlessness. And a simple way to do that is use something called an actigraph, which is like a little watch that you can put on their ankle that measures the, you know, their restlessness um, we can analyze that. The other thing besides doing like the, the BISC or the, you know, brief infant sleep questionnaire, which gives us some good, you know, data, and that's a validated questionnaire. The other things we're going to be looking at are um, salivary cortisol and melatonin levels. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a minimally invasive way to look at, you know, stress hormones and melatonin, um, which are important for sleep. So all the parents and the parents will be able to do this. Um, we've already started this, um, just taking little swabs, little cotton sort of swabs, and it goes out to the lab so they can measure those levels. Um, and, it, you know, we have our suspicions on, you know, what's going to be what. So we're still in the very you know beginnings of the data collection phase. And we're starting to get some, you know, small amounts of data back, which are showing, yeah, we are seeing some improvements, um, you know, a little too soon to, to elaborate objectively but again we think this is another way to kind of push the whole connection the airway feeding breathing so we're kind of got things from different angles here we're looking at this the airway sleep disorder breathing connection and starting with the infants we're starting with the infants with the swallowing and feeding and we're just going to kind of keep pushing it forward and uh you know see where it goes i love Uh, that yeah, yeah. But again, it's, you know, there's a lot of variables at play. So we're trying to, you know, get, start somewhere. Right, right. Know? And then we'll certainly, you know, hear all the critiques and the criticisms from everybody out there about, you know, you can't make these correlations because that's all you tend to hear. It's like, I know, well, you got to start somewhere. Yes. And like you said, it's a very challenging population to work with because, you know, who do you decide gets what treatment or doesn't? I mean, you can't withhold it when you think it's medically necessary right. for an infant or anybody, really. Um, so this is not just a medical trial to see if, you know, some medicine you're prescribing may work or may not work. This is this is a child who has airway and feeding and overall developmental issues that will become very significant if they're not right. dealt with. And, you know, what we know is we know that doing that phrenectomy or that phrenotomy is likely going to be very helpful for this child if they're receiving the other supporting services. So, um, yeah, no, I think what you're doing is very exciting and I'm, I'm curious to see where this all goes, where this leads. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, I think, you know, for our, our combined specialties and to see the collaboration and especially in the past few years, it's really kind of, you know, exploded between, you know, the speech component. And that's the whole other area that we're trying to look at, you know, you know, with what you guys deal with in the speech and feeding areas and trying to get that collaboration going and, right. um, 
you know, we're, we're really limited to lots of the case studies at this point. You know? yes. yeah. yeah, certainly case studies are valid. And like we say, all of these cases are very difficult. There's so many variables at play and each child is different. You know, yeah. each child has their own set of issues and we can't just lump them all together. Exactly. But with, with the research we're trying to do is at least get some numbers up there to give a, a decent sample size and look at trends, look at, you know, is what we're doing effective? It, we mm-hmm. know it's a, we know it's effective for certain things, um, but right. well, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's and then you mentioned a good point with you know there's not a lot of research supporting the speech side or even the feeding side, you know, for mm-hmm. for what I do and for what my colleagues do as speech therapists working with infants and you know feeding and. Um, or later speech sounds, you know, I work with both the infants and I also work with um, toddlers and I work with older, you know, uh, school age kids and adults within myofunctional therapy. And so I'm really specialized in working a lot with tethered oral tissues and trying to determine like, along with my team, you know, do we feel like they need to be referred for a possible consultation to see if they need a, uh, you know, a phrenectomy or do we think we might be able to do myofunctional therapy and avoid that? And, and, what am right. I going based on? There's no research to support this. Right. Half the time. It's basically, or not half the time, but most of the time, it's basically me doing a functional assessment and looking at like, what are the symptoms and what research do we have and what clinical evidence, you know, and case studies can I reference and what is my clinical experience because clinical experience is that lowest level of evidence-based research. So kind That's of going it. with what we can right now, my end goal is one, do no harm, but two, I feel like, I need to present everything that I know can help, you know, within reason to these families. And if that means a phrenectomy is on the table, I'm going to refer you to the oral surgeon that I work very closely with. So, um, you know, or one of the dentists or whatever, but it's, I think we're in an interesting time right now because obviously there's a lot of research to be done. Um, but you work with, you know, you're doing research with a very special population of these infants and I get these infants in here and I just go, Oh man, like, <laughs> I mean, we need to, we need to act today. This is not. Yeah. Something that well, that's what, you know, the goal for us to do, because I work with so many old, you know, I work with tons of toddlers and I work very closely with, you know, all the people that have been on these podcasts. I work very closely with Robin Walsh. I work very closely with, you know, Lori Overland and, and for years and research and, with James Ryan with his yeah absolutely with James and you know and we're all been together trying to like oh you know there's a lot missing here um, but if we're all working together and like you said you know what do we do first you know what comes first how much therapy is it therapy only therapy plus surgery plus you know whatever you you know is it the body work component yeah. and, and you know so the collaborations have been amazing and the amount of I learn and just realize every day, I don't know what I don't know. And that's the biggest, you know, but then we look at risk versus benefit. Like you said, do no harm. So if I can offer a fairly low risk procedure that we think can help, or, you know, hopefully not do any harm and make anything more disorganized, then we'll offer it. But, um, you know, that that's the clinical experience thing is, is definitely a big part of that whole, you know, yeah. And it's it's definitely a tricky population, I think, to treat, regardless of what direction you're coming from, whether it's yours or mine or, you know, one of our colleagues, just because it, there is no cookie cutter way of treating these cases. And so we might know that, okay, we think we're headed towards a phrenectomy or a phrenotomy. Like, we know that that's probably coming down the pike, but 
what does this child look like right now? Like I spoke with Michelle Emanuel about, right. you know, optimal timing of release. Right. Well, okay, right. if you have a newborn, obviously we want to, we're probably going to get that newborn in there pretty quickly and get it done. But if we are now past that, you know, that initial stage and there's other factors at play, you know, sometimes that body work is absolutely necessary. And sometimes yep. they need some of that feeding therapy, therapy beforehand and, you know, feeding therapy immediately following as well as body. Work. And again, it's, I've seen it happen in so many different scenarios just because of how families either choose to proceed with one specialty or another. Um, but I think that also says something, you know, we can speak to what it looks like when we don't have that collaborative model of care. And it's not always, the fault of the professionals involved. Sometimes it's just the parent is overwhelmed or resources or, you know, time, money, you know, that's, that's tough. And these new moms who are going through their postpartum, you know, what they say, the fourth trimester, um, you know, just being either a new mom or a mom with a toddler at home and a newborn or whatever the case may be. There's just so many variables that go into the aftercare. And I think it also makes it challenging as professionals to go, like what, what is the right protocol? I mean, we keep, I think I hear a lot of, well, we need collaborative care and we need, you know, we need to really look at what, what research is available and that is good. And that is great. But I also think we need to step back and go, well, these are, these are human beings caring for another human being. And what can we do to maximize the need, you know, and, and serve this family, this mom, this baby, this dad, you know, in the immediate moment without, like you said, while doing no harm, limiting any risks, getting the greatest benefit possible for them. Um, so I think it's a juggling act that we all do on a regular basis, and we're trying right. to all do it within, you know, within reason, within our scope of practice, within the information we do have available at our fingertips at the moment. And that, that's the biggest thing, and I think that's really lost. And it, that comes back when I when I teach, especially, you talk about the art component of, you know, what we do. Yeah, it's an art, you know, they're, they're all behind science or whatnot, but, you know, understanding and feeling out the family, their needs, their wants, their goals, their resource limitations and whatnot, you know, and you kind of have to figure this out and be sensitive to that, um, you know, and because, yeah, for years, you know, I was the only one I was trying to juggle the hats of doing, I didn't know how to do therapy or anything, but I was the one that was getting the calls for everything because I didn't have anybody to refer to. Mm. And I was refer, you know, dealing with more disasters than anything else. Mm. Um, but now, you know, you kind of just try to have to help guide as best yeah. as you can. But there is a, there's a big art component of what we do in, in practice, in private practice, especially, yes. you know, when you go to lecture in, in a hospital, whatnot, everybody is very clinical and very, you know, either judgmental or wanting just strict guidelines. And you know, that's really not how, you know, human beings <laughs> work. Right, exactly. So, we can have our processes. It doesn't mean they always go according right. to plan. <laughs> well, we try to get some objective data. We try to do our best with the research and, and push it forward, but also realizing, you know, that, that there's either a baby on the other end here or there's a family on the other end or child, you know, with, with multiple needs and the families with multiple needs. And, you know, what piece of the puzzle am I? And that's what I would say. We're, I'm a piece of a puzzle. I'm not the be-all and end-all. Right. Many families come to me thinking that this is going to be the, the silver bullet for them, and that's sometimes a disappointment, you know, and trying to temper that and realize where we all kind of fit, you know. Yeah. 
And I think the other thing people don't really realize is how much time and energy goes into not just educating families, but time that we spend with the families. It's not like they just walk into the office, you, you laser that baby's tongue and they're on their way five minutes later, later after you show them some post-op exercises to do, because I think that's what people think it is. Um, they don't realize how many providers are actually sitting with that family for half an hour you know, and doing a consult. And sometimes yeah, they, yeah. they may come back a week later for the actual procedure. You're sitting with them again, and then you're sitting with them post-op. And then they come back yeah. a week after that, and you're checking, and you're sitting with them again. And there's more discussion. Um, some providers have told me they spend an hour, you know, here and there. And and that's time that we're not getting compensated for, right. but we're doing that out of the goodness of our heart because we want to help these babies. Right. And so, you know, and that's also what's probably driving a lot of the research that, you know, that you're doing is we really want to be able to help, and we want to be able to give that objective data so that we can do our jobs well and help these babies and these families and, and and you know not just feel good about what we're doing but have that research to be like okay guys look you know you should be referring them over here because we have the research to support it now um so i know i, I feel like we're headed there we're, we're headed in the right direction and i want to thank you so much for all the work that you are spearheading and doing with your team because it's it's needed um but it's a tricky population like we've said a couple times yeah, already today it it's a tricky population we're we're dealing with a uh, you know a medical community at whole who's very skeptical of what we're doing. Yes. You know, it's, it's disheartening. You know, I get, I, the heartening part is in the past two to three years, I've seen a, a drastic increase in direct pediatric referrals. Pediatricians who are actually referring now for just assessment. And then I can actually, you know, help get these people the right therapies and stuff like that, or, you know, the pre-op work that they need because that was not happening. But on the, on the flip side, then we hear feedback saying that, you know, many pediatricians feel that, you know, we're all in cahoots with each other, paying each all other off. <laughs> right. you know, and, you know, there's kickback schemes going on. And I've been accused of that. There's lactation consultants and feeding and speech therapists that have been accused in, in the, you know, New York tri-state area of that. And it's, that's crazy. you hear that and you're just like, you have to be kidding me. You know, yeah. it's really so frustrating. Um, and I don't know what to say. Just say, put the blinders on, you know, keep moving forward. You have people out there, you know, trying to get the word out. You have books coming out. You have Richard Baxter's great book, which is a nice thing for, you know, parents and some general people to kind of really, yeah. you know, sink their teeth in and see what's going on, you know, and, and between, you know, Laurie and Robin's book as well. So there's, there's a lot more coming out which is nice to see, um, and so much other research going on. You have, you know, Saru Zaghi pushing a lot forward within a very short period of time, Bobby Gahari and you know, the rest of the, the crew that everybody, you know, quotes and looks up to, but. You know, no, it's it's great. It's, it's very exciting. And I know um, I've talked to James Ryan as well. He's got some, you yeah. know, some research he's working on as well. And so I just think that from all these different sources and, we're gonna we're going to pull it together it will happen I mean, but you know, you know it takes time <laughs> it does you know and james's recent publication on on you know understanding what, what do we all think tongue ties are you know our right. all definitions it's trying to get this unification which has been trying to happen for a long time is mm -hmm. slow and going but yeah, and he wants to, you know, work on, I won't discuss it on here, but he wants to work on some other research as well. You know, first, I think, surrounding, like, speech, maybe. And yeah. and so I think that that's definitely needed. And I think coming from an oral surgeon who's leading the way and talking about, like, speech directly related to, you know, tongue ties, phrenectomies, I think that'll be really exciting um, as that 
progresses. So yeah, I mean, there's, I know there's definitely things on the horizon and um, I actually had presented over at Walter Reed on the topic of orofacial myology. And they had said to me, um, they have a dedicated speech therapist who just does research in, in the department there. And so she had said, you know, oh, we really want to see, you know, even if orofacial myology, myofunctional therapy, you know, that is something that truly works. Like there just isn't even that much research on that. And the research right. is there is, you know, it's old, which doesn't discount it, but nobody's, nobody's looking at it and everyone's going myo, myo, myo. So, you know, I said, huh. And so we actually, because I happen to live walking distance to Walter Reed, it's across the street from me in Bethesda. Um, I said, well, well, you know, what can we do here? And she said, well, maybe if like you assess them before, if we assess them in the beginning and we assess them at the end, but you do the therapy in between, we can have an idea, you know, and, and we yeah. haven't, we haven't had a chat about it any further, but you know, there's definitely an interest and a need out there. So I do encourage anybody listening to the podcast, if research is something that is something that interests you, um, whether it be tongue tie related, phrenectomy related, myofunctional therapy, you know, or facial myofunctional therapy, I should say, um, related that there's a need. And I think that the more people that start to explore this need and work on it, the, that's, that's how we're going to get this progressing faster, um, on all levels. So. Oh, undoubtedly, you know, and, and trying to get that interest maybe into the schools, you know, whether it's the, you know, I, I've given some lectures at some of the, um, um, the SLP programs in the New York area. And it really, you know, the antennas go up and like, I can think of a research project I want to do, you know, and, and so people like, you know, the, the, the seeds are being planted. So if it starts coming out from at least the, any academic programs, then. Yeah. You know. yeah. You know, and I don't know how it is in New York, but I know here, cause I actually worked in the schools for three years, anything medical was like, Nope, don't even go there. Just refer them to the pediatrician and say, I have a concern about X, but don't, don't diagnose, just describe, you know, what you're seeing. Don't even throw out a, like, I want to rule out, you know, enlarged tonsils, just say the child seems to cough a lot and is sick a lot and doesn't sleep well. Like, that's really helpful. No, I mean, yeah, I want you to look at their tonsils. That's why we're, you know, and it was also a, well, don't refer because if you do refer them, we're on the hook for paying for it. So, you know, this is an educational model, not a medical model. And here I am, I finished out my contract and left because I was like, this is not a place where I can ethically do my job. Um, (laughs) Not to say that people who are in the school are not being ethical and doing their job because that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying me and what I knew and what I wanted to work on, I wanted to do feeding and what I was being told I could not do was just not okay for me. So put that little disclaimer in there. Um, But anyways, yeah, leaving was the best decision I ever made because, you know, I was like, I can't be bound by... I have concerns about the medical concerns. And if this child was vomiting, you would probably send him home and say, go to your pediatrician, vomiting, roll out the flu, whatever, you know, but here you're telling me I'm looking in this child's mouth and their tongue is on the floor of their mouth and their tonsils look humongous. I can see them. They're, you know, blocking the airway. But if I refer them to an ENT, I'm on the hook. I mean, that's just, it made no sense. So I, (laughs) we definitely have uh, changes in advocacy that needs to be done in the schools as well. So I'm really excited that you're, speaking to uh-huh. groups. I've, I've done that with um, like a group of local speech pathologists, uh, right. ed group. And I think that's hope helped to open up. Um, uh, you know, we've seen definite ways in, in how things are taught and, you know, perceived. And even though it's not coming from ASHA or anything like that, they're able to kind of institute some changes mm-hmm. on, and even have them, you know, some of the therapists come to shadow or whatnot to see how I assess. Yeah. But I was like, 
I, I really depend on your assessment. Right, right, right. Uh, right. Your functional assessment that guides me yes. treatment, you know. So I'm like, you know, it's not the reverse. Yeah. Well, and uh, thanks I, to Robin and many of, yeah. you know, many of them, she's really spearheaded a lot of, and, you know, there was a group of them really, but with getting ASHA to even recognize that myofunctional therapy is something that needs to be, you know, front and center with every other thing that's in our scope of practice because it's in right. our scope and our state licenses dictate it's in our scope. But ASHA had it on the website at one point, took it off. And I mean, how confusing is that? Not just to speech pathologists, but everybody else in the medical <laughs> in the medical right. arena. So um, thankfully, thanks to Robin and, you know, a few others and their very hard work that is back up there. And right. it has, you know, it's a good start, a good, nice uh chunk of information about, you know, orofacial myology and what we do as myofunctional therapists and, and speech pathologists. So um, a big shout out to her because, yeah, she's always advocating. I don't oh, yeah. know how she has the time. <laughs> uh, there's no sleep involved. So. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> yes, this is true. That's the whole thing. You need, you, need, you need people like that. You need the starting points and then yes. just, you know, and don't back off. And yeah. um, you know, just persistence oh, as, yeah. tact- as tactfully as you can and, you know, mm-hmm. not making too many enemies along the way. And, and the doors start to open, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it happens just a slow go. And I can see it just even, you know, in my, my direct area in the tri-state, you know, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, um, how things have been evolving in the, in the past, you know, this is 19 years of doing it going on 20, but in the past, five to 10 years. It's really, Mm -hmm. um, even in the past three to five years, it's exploded. Yes. Oh yeah. In just the DC metro area, I've seen a lot more um, in the way of myofunctional therapists courses and putting themselves out there and saying, I do this work, which I think is fantastic. So there's such a huge need. And so part of me also wonders if there's some, you know, at least in my world, if there's more awareness being brought to tethered oral tissues, because it's being discussed in those myofunctional courses and as something that we need to rule out, because if we have a structural, you know, if there's something structural that we're working against, you're not going to make it too far in your myo program. Um, So yeah, I definitely think that that's, I've seen that contribute a bit. I think like the, the research you're doing, you said, you know, um, through Soggy's work and, and Bobby's work and, you know, Robin and Lori and, you know, all of this work that's being done, I think also is just, it's also helping to really up the ante in a way that, you know, it's, it's bringing it to light and it's like bringing it more credibility to, to you know, what everybody's doing. Absolutely. Um, so I have a question. So what do you think, you know, if somebody wants to get involved in doing research or, you know, what is, what do you recommend? Like, what do you tell people? Where do they start? Where do they go? I mean, you know, you can start in your own practice. You don't, you don't have to have, you know, big money or something. You don't have to have IRB approvals and all of these things to do basic things. You know, if you want to start with surveys and questionnaires, you can start, you don't have to bite off more than you can handle. You have to kind of fit it into your you know, life, unless you're an academic person and you're fully academic and you have that, you know, freedom of time and whatnot to do that, you know, start with something smaller, talk to other people to see if they are interested in collaborating. Like you're talking about, you know, we collaborate with James Ryan and, you know, we collaborate all over the world and country. And so people, you know, with our technology, it's, it's fairly easy to do, Um, you know, but come up with your question, bounce it off of other people and, you know, I, I think just don't hold back. Yeah. Start collecting some data. Yeah. yeah. Right. 
I love it. Thank you. I, you make it sound so simple. And I think some people just hear research and they all just, their brain goes to level one, clinical, yes, IRB, exactly, money, exactly. time, I don't know what I'm doing, you know. And listen, case reports hold credence too. So mm-hmm. if it's as simple as, you know, a case report, there's journals of case reports that you can submit to yeah. open access that make it easier to, you know, get those things published. And the more you can continue to publish it, you know, I, in my mind, it still holds credence. You know, I agree. Mine too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and sometimes um, I think case studies are just a really good teaching tool because it helps Absolutely. you develop your skills on a level that the textbook is not going to, you know, when you're reading a textbook definition or you're reading about a protocol, that's great. But like you said, we were talking about the art of what we do and you, you need to know how to pivot in the moment and right. in, analyze a different medical history and a case, you know, this case versus that case, their tongue might look very similar, but they may have very different symptoms and very different medical histories. And so I think what the case studies really do for me personally is it just helps me to think outside the box and look at things a bit differently and kind of go, Hmm, I wonder if, you know, and who else do we need to pull in here? What other referrals might need to be made? What do we need to rule out? What, you know, how can I best help this child in this immediate moment based on all this information and that's totally going to be influenced by the case studies and my past clients that I review or that I've worked with. So, um, I think there's a lot, I think everybody kind of poo-poo's case studies because it's not, you know, it's not that level one, um, research, but man, I've learned, I feel like a lot more from case studies than I've learned from anything else. Yeah. The the case studies, you know, just even my own practice, the, 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 and especially the complex cases that you can't follow a guideline for, but you're all working together yeah. You know, and they each case brings up more questions. And that's always what I say is, don't, you know, don't be afraid to ask more questions because we don't know these answers and don't be dismissive. I don't know what I don't know. So I'll ask more yes. questions. Yes. And when I when I try to teach, you know, pediatric residents or dental residents or oral surgery residents, like, you know, don't dismiss things just because you don't know. We, we see that a lot. I see it a lot in, in my profession here. You know, pediatrician will dismiss things. Yes. Like, Oh, they're fine. They're lazy. They're a lazy feeder. They're, oh, they're gaining weight. They're just lazy. Right. You know? So like, you know, something else is up here. Let's just yeah. you know, maybe look at it a little bit more and let me send you to this person who might know more than I do. In a yeah. Different way. So, well, and I love what you said before. Like, we don't know what we don't know. But I also find that the more that I learn, the more I realize I don't know. Yes. So the more there Absolutely. is to be learned and the more there is to explore. And I think that when we get into a place of I know everything. Like that's a very dangerous place to be. Or if we just become dismissive, well, I don't know, but you're not willing to truly help, you know, and and figure it out or refer to somebody who can, if you, if that's not something in your scope or something you even want to do yourself, fine, just figure out what that next referral source is. I mean, we do that in our practice all the time. I, you know, have a smaller practice. Like maybe we service a hundred clients a month. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Somewhere around that on average. And you know, but when somebody calls and it's not in the area that, that we serve, because we typically travel to them, like I work out of my home, but I have therapists that travel all over DC, Maryland, and Virginia. If we don't have somebody that comes to your exact area with the expertise that you need, I will find that therapist to refer you to. And I'm not just going to send you to the closest practice. I'm going to find the, ther- the practice with the therapist that has what I think your child needs based on 
what we discussed on the phone. And I know not every practice can do that, but I feel, I feel an obligation to help these moms and babies. And I don't want you to go chasing, you know, every which way it's going to take, it's going to waste a lot of time. So I'm like, if I I have the resources and the network to find that person, even if I haven't worked with you sometimes, you know, we're going to try and find that person for you. So, you know, that's, that's a big passion project of mine, but (laughs) I think that's with most of us at this point. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to try to, you know, do the best. The right hands. Yeah. I'll get you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Is there anything else that you want to share with us that we didn't cover today? I don't think so. It's just like, you know, the things that when I talk about my research, all I say is like, oh, this is a starting point because each time I, we look at what we're doing, it just opens up more questions. Like you said, with certain other things like, yes. well, you know, we're just going to stick with what we're doing at this with this project right now. But this one project or, you know, spun off, you know, another five or 10 questions for us to yeah. investigate. Yeah. So that's where we go with this. You know, it's um, and like it's just all starting points. Right. Nothing is ever set in stone. You can no. always pivot. You can always yep. take what you do for the first study and move on and do something different or tweak something in the second. I mean, yeah. And I think that's where people get so critical over every little thing they read. And it's like, guys, this right. Is, right. This when is, you see when you see your papers ripped apart or when like, all right, you know, let me see you put something out there, right. or put, yeah. you know, stick yeah. your neck out and yeah. try to push something forward. Just do it. Yeah, all the pioneers in this space, because I do feel like a lot of you are pioneers, you and Robin and Bobby and Saroosh and, you know, it's just, and and Lori and everybody who, you know, James, everybody who's that we've talked about, and I know there's many others that we're not even mentioning here. Oh, yeah, there's Um, there's a lot. But everybody who's pioneering this, like, it takes a lot of time and energy, and for what? Just to get people, you know? telling you like this is horrible <laughs> it's not oh, a good feeling I but i can also... tell you what you know when i was down presenting at the american academy of pediatrics oh. i was you know brutalized by a couple of pediatricians brutalized it was horrible oh, but, and i was like i'm not telling i'm just telling you what i see yeah but i love your attitude about it you're very much like you know this is what we found take it or leave right. it and you know well we learn from this and we we can pivot and do different things and look at next other things in the next study. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I think the work you're doing is great. So thank you for that. Thank you for everything that you're doing and, and, you know, spreading the word because it's uh, so important. Thank you. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Myo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire, for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.